0: Morning. It's really good to be back with you. It really is. I'm looking forward to this. It's been a busy week. I hope it's been good for you. I traveled to Jacksonville and back and got home Thursday night and then friends stopped over yesterday, so the week's been full. And the conversations have been good. And I'm very grateful. You would open your Bibles to Luke chapter nine. We we'll take a little journey this morning through the book of Luke and seeing how a lot of things come together in understanding how Jesus actually lived. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you so much that we can meet, we can open up your Word, and we can look to see, Lord, what you actually did, how you lived, how you responded to your day and how you want us to live in our day. Thank you, Father, for your amazing grace. Uh, Lord, we are so grateful. So grateful, Father, that we can worship. Thank you for extending us to freedom today. I think of our brothers and sisters around the world, some of which are not going to have a, a good day. The persecution of the church and other things, Lord, we ask you to the strengthen them. Provide for your families. Provide for those around the world, Lord, that are in intense suffering. And Father, for us today, we pray that you'll help to keep us focused on the things that you want us to be focused on. We ask in the name of Jesus, Lord, today for your touch and healing for Pastor Chris and Robin. We ask that you'd remove the pain and allow uh, complete restoration of health, if that's what you have ordained. In either way, Lord, we know that your presence is real. We ask Jesus your peace would consume them in very real ways, Lord. And we ask your blessing and favor on them. And on your church, Father, for us today, in whatever we have brought here today, Lord, we set aside for these moments. We want to hear from you, Father. So speak as we listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Such a good day. I was sitting there thinking that I wish we could just pray. Ever just wish you could just stop everything, you know, stop this crazy life and, and just calm our heart, take a deep breath and pray. Uh, so much can be learned there. So much can be seen. But if you ever gone home, and I'm sure you have because you're a human being like I am. You go home from church and you decide to talk about church. I know pastors do this. They go home with their wives, and they ask about their message. They ask about the church, and what are you thinking? But then there's the larger discussion of the church in Western civilization, or the church globally. This week, I spent time with three of our uh, Reach Global uh, Asian directors. So we're talking about the church in like 10, 14 countries, from Iran to Japan to North Carolina, uh, uh, North Korea, not North Carolina, North Korea. Uh, the southern part of Russia all the way down to Australia, uh, that was what these four gentlemen, these three gentlemen's responsibilities are. And overseeing church planting, we talked about the the future and what could be done, and they're asking me questions about what have you done here and how can we see it over there. Uh, I I think Jackie and I are actually going to be doing a six-month intensive and bringing two missionaries into our home for six months and to just be immersed with us to see exactly how we're doing uh, life and making disciples and seeing new churches planted should be fun. We have no clue how it's going to work. But that's that was one of the outcomes that come out of it. But the idea that we sat there and we talked about the church. When we talk about the church, we talk about usually about the institutional church. Uh, this the church uh, faith Bible fellowship is an institution. It's the corporate body reflecting the individual church which we are. As we walk through those doors, um, and we go out in the world, we are the church. Uh, this is just a building. Um, I've met in so many different ways overseas and so many different places. I can't even, you know, a sheet of plastic over our heads. I mean, I've been in all different situations. It's humbling. But to people, that's our church. It's when people gather together corporately to worship, to pray, to open up the scriptures, to hug on each other and love on each other and cry on each other and get the strength and encouragement to face that next week. That's what we do as church. When Jackie and I moved to a small town in Wisconsin to be a part of the Evangelical Free Church, it was a, a European-Dutch dairy farming community. If you're Dutch, and you, you'll know the name Friesland or Fries. And these were the tend to be religiously kind of like the legalistic uh, people from the Netherlands. So these were five generations of dairy farmers. And on Monday morning in a local coffee shop, and maybe you have one here in Oak Ridge, we would go in, and there were tables of men, and they were talking. You guess what they were talking about? They are talking about church, talking about their, they didn't call us pastors there, they called us reverend. I had to get used to that. I wasn't, that just wasn't part of Even though I am a reverend, it's not something I was normally called. And so we were in there, we were listening to them discuss church. The good, the bad, and the ugly of church church is made up of people. And so maybe you've had those discussions. And when I'm in uh, different corners, and this week we're going to be with um, over 1,500 leaders in Naperville, Illinois, for our national conference. In July, I'm going to be with over 76 different denominational directors and church planning leaders, and we're discussing the church. You know, what's going on? What do we don't like about it? What do we see that's a good trend? What do we see that's a a negative trend? What would we like to see changed? Because the Western church is different than the church globally in different parts of the world. The church has different uh, uh, seasons of life and things are happening differently. But nevertheless, we talk about the church. It's easy for the church to forget what it was even called to do. Sometimes when I'm coaching one of my church planters, and if you haven't been here, I'm um, Jackie and I are church planting missionaries. We have helped a lot of people, couples start new churches around the United States, but right now in the last 10 years, it's been in the southern states. That's been a new education for us. Never thought I'd move south. I'm a, I used to live outside of Chicago in the country, so I'm a Midwesterner, and here I am down here. Whole new culture. In fact, uh, the South is kind of interesting because uh, you start to, you know, like Tennessee and Kentucky are different than the Carolinas, different from Florida. Some you see at Southern states don't even count Florida as a Southern state. I don't even know if Florida thinks it's a Southern state. Then you have Alabama. Then you have Mississippi. you got a whole new world there. Now, just imagine church in those contexts and how you do church. And how people dress, and how people behave, and how people at uh, each other. I mean, all those things are just things that happen in the church. In the midst of it, it's to realize that Jesus said he would build his church. And the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. I've met some people who have been serving the Lord faithfully for years, phenomenal ministries, and they've come from some of the most weirdest places I would never even imagined. Different traditions I would never have imagined. I've never experienced myself. And yet in the midst of that, God raises up his church. It's vibrant, it's alive, and people's lives are being transformed. You know, when you come to Luke chapter 9, we see some interesting things going on in Luke chapter 9. It's really interesting. This is where Jesus sends out the 12. This is where Herod beheads John. Uh, This is where the 5,000 are fed, Peter's confession of faith. uh, He talks about saving and losing faith, the transfiguration, the child is healed, and then there's an argument about who's going to be the greatest by James and John. You've all read that, or you've heard of that. It's all summed up in chapter 9. Chapter 9, if you look through the Gospels, and I've shared this before, all four Gospels only equal 47 days of the life of Christ. In those 47 days, Luke chapter 9 is pivotal in that it's really a pivotal time in the life of Jesus. If you were to take your Bible, and I'm looking at mine right now, and I grab chapter 1, and I go to chapter 4, these few pages, that's the first 18 months of the life of Jesus. Isn't that something? When you take all 47 days that are revealed in all four Gospels, Luke only records four pages at the first 18 months of his ministry, of his life actually, everything from birth to the halfway point in his three-year ministry. 18 months to 20 months some say even two years, we find ourselves at Luke chapter 9. And Jesus um, does something really remarkable because usually the disciples follow their rabbi, their leader. He's going to send them out himself. And Luke chapter 9, and by the way, just... uh, Yeah, so in Luke chapter 9, he called the 12 together, gave them power and authority over all the demons to heal diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and perform the healing. And he said to them... Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, neither a bag, not bread, nor money. I do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from the city, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. It's a very interesting pivot here. So three-year ministry Jesus had, right now he's at a point in the life of Christ where he starts to hand off what he's been trying to do. In The first 18, 20 months, he spent all his time in the countryside. He hadn't gone to the cities yet. We know he's done two recorded miracles, the healing of the Nova and son, and the famous one where he turned the water into wine. That's all he did in 18 months. Now we know he did other things, but those are the only two recorded things we have. But now he moves from the country into the cities. And when he moves into the city, it says in other, in other books of other Gospels that he actually was at his home, he actually sent his disciples out into the other villages. Capernaum was an interesting community because all around it were all these little communities, all different sizes. And it was a, kind of like a, dis, a dispersing place. And so he started to send his disciples out and he sent the 12 out at this point in his ministry. At this point in his ministry, we, when, you, when you look at chapter uh, 5 of Luke, you know that's when he starts to choose the disciples. And he calls them, and he, this is where um, the sons of Zebedee, says, you're going to stop catching fish, now you're going to follow me, you're going to catch men. There's a shift from just come and follow me, that I'll come, and I'm going to teach you how to fish for men. We don't find until chapter 6 that he actually spends a whole night fasting and prayer and then he chooses the twelve. Um, I'm, I kind of joke around this when we talk about church. He didn't use a nominating committee. <laughs> he got together and he got before the Father and he heard God's voice as to who he should choose. I've done this as a pastor in equipping and training men as I've spent time fasting and praying that I've chose them and I can't believe the difference when you go to the father and ask him for his permission of what he wants. it changes a lot of different things. So at that pivotal place, he starts this six-month, nine-month, ten-month, maybe maybe a year period, where now he's going to start to equip them, and he first he calls them to be fishers of men, then he chooses the twelve. We know in chapter 8 he breaks the rules. There's a lot of stuff that goes on here, but in chapter 8 he breaks the uh, rules, and he actually has women following him around, and they're ministering to him, and he actually has... Women disciples in his group. We knew from from when I talked on prayer um, two weeks ago that there were 120 people in the upper room, men and women together praying. Uh, this wasn't typical for a rabbi to do this. Jesus had his 12, but he had others following him, and the women were ministering, and they were right there. They were supporting them. They were doing what they can. And um, but, but you see that in chapter 8. You can go through there. He even has specific women, Mary and others that are there. And then you come to chapter 9, and there's nine to 10 month window, and then he sends the 12 out. He sends them out to do evangelism. Sends them out to minister, to spread and proclaim the gospel. And uh, there's, there's some factors here that are really important for us, I think, as we come together, because of this pivotal chapter in the life of Christ. What was he doing with his disciples? We're his dis- If you know Christ, you're his disciple. If you have um, experienced the the Holy Spirit, we had this discussion yesterday. Somebody stopped by the house and said, how do you really know if somebody really knows the Lord? I said, well, I don't, but God knows. And it's really simple. Romans 8 says that the Spirit himself will bear witness with your spirit that you're a child of God. hope you've experienced that. But you're a disciple his then. In the midst of that, when you see that, some extraordinary things happen. First of all, we see in chapter 9 here that it's permission and purpose. Jesus gave the disciples permission. Um, I challenge my pastors this all the time. Some of my pastors feel that they need to do everything. It's a big problem. God never intended the church to be led by a pastor who does everything. In chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians, he gives the gift offices to the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And the most beautiful verse there to me is verse 11. It says, for the equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry. Uh, If you belong to a church or you attend a church, it's your responsibility to be involved in the ministry of the gospel to people in and outside the church. It doesn't fall just on the pastor. We all have issues of delegation. It's one of my, one of the biggest struggles I have with my church planters is getting them to empower other people. They, they, they want to. That's not the point. They want to. But we get stuck in that. Some of you get stuck in that too at your jobs and your families. We tell our children to do something, then we yell at them when they don't do it right away, and then we think, oh, I'll just do it because I could do it better. It's a typical thing. But what Jesus does here is so different than what the Jews were used to, is he was empowering them and giving them permission and purpose behind The purpose was the authority to proclaim the kingdom. He said... Uh, he said it here, and they gave him like he gave him power and authority. So he not only gave him the power to do it, he gave them the authority to do it. It's a different ballgame. You know, one of the most freeing things about the Great Commission, you go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. What? What? Did you get that? All that God has commanded us, we are to teach to others. I'm not responsible to teach what you know. I'm responsible to teach what I know to my own children, to my own grandchildren. As I travel around, one of the one of the most difficult things to hear about is to hear about people's children's children who aren't walking with the Lord. That's tough. I've got a couple grandkids that still haven't trusted Christ. One just turned 20 the other day. It breaks my heart. It's not that she hasn't heard, not that she hasn't been reminded multiple times, and grew up in the church. But unless God is working, unless the Father is drawn, unless the Spirit's convicting, unless the person's responding, it isn't going to happen. And so we keep praying. But in this is to know that we've been given that permission. In John 17, 13, Jesus said this, But now I come to you, Father, these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fooling themselves, and that thou who has sent me in the world, I also have sent them into the world. I do not ask, he goes on, on behalf of these alone, but for those who will believe after them, through their word, that they may all be one, just as even you, Father, and I are one. So I send them. You see, as believers, we are sent ones. We are sent into the world. We live in the world. We're to be in the world, not to embrace the world, so to speak, but we are to be in the world as light, and bringing the gospel to people. Uh, It was in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. That would be a wonderful thing to meditate on if you're looking for something to do in your time with the Lord, just to meditate upon the words that Jesus speaks to the Father about us. Just make a list. Say, What does it say about God? What is Jesus praying for us? It's remarkable when you get in there and you see that. And in Luke chapter 9 here, he's given us the permission and the authority. We are the priesthood of believers. The the, the significance of understanding that is that we don't need a mediator to go before the Father. We go to the Father and minister to Him. That's what 1 Peter 2 is all about. You and I have access. One of my most comforting verses to me in times of, of good, in times of bad, in times of as trials is Hebrews 4.16, that I can have confidence in going before the throne of grace to find the mercy and grace I need in a time of need. I need grace and mercy all the time. I don't know about you. But I, have, I know I have that access. Why? Because I'm a priest of the Father. I'm a priest of God. The priesthood of all believers. By the way, that's one of the number one reasons why God led Jackie and I into the Evangelical Free Church because it's a high, high value of them is the, empower, the empowerment of the laity to do the work of the ministry. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 28 to his disciples, as you are going through life, you are to make disciples. You and I have been given the permission and to know we have purpose. The purpose is to make disciples, but the glorious thing has given us permission. He's given us his spirit for that empowerment, and he has given us the giftedness to accomplish Everything he's asked of us to do. I love that one little verse in Ephesians 1, verse 4. That He's given us all the blessings in the spiritual heavenlies He's already given to us in Christ. He didn't shortchange any of us. We don't we're not lacking in nothing. God has given us exactly what we need to be where we need to be. The second thing I hear seeing here in Luke chapter 9. Is the power was promised to not only the permission was given, power was promised. We know that in Luke 2:24, verses 47 through 48, he says you're to wait until power comes upon you. We know in Acts chapter 1, as I covered a couple of weeks ago, Jesus said you'll be my witness when power comes upon you. And we know that in Acts chapter 1, they were praying in the upper room, 120 of them praying until that power was released upon them. Yesterday, as I was talking to one of my best friends. He's, uh, I think he's, I think Ron's 81 now. One of the things we were talking about, he, he he was wrestling with that 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 whole idea of the Spirit's working in you. And I and, and I said, well, once you have the Holy Spirit in you, and it's confirmed by your Spirit, you you are a child of God. It's not whether you can walk away from it or whether you can or not. That's that's all between the individual and God. But in the midst of it is noted that the, the, the power was promised to the disciples. As you and I are serving, as you and I are ministering to other people and comforting them and and uh, pro- proclaiming the kingdom, doing all that, there's power there. We're not powerless. Warren Worsby, who just recently went home to be with the Lord, um, said that in one of his books he said, Power is the ability to accomplish the task and the authority, and the right to do it. He said Jesus gave them both. That's what that's what this passage is saying. Not only was permission given, not only was the authority given, but the power to finish the task, to be about the task, to be about the ministry. Uh, we know that um, this task also, not only was permission given with purpose, not only was their power promised, but we see thirdly here that The task was defined here in this passage. We were to proclaim the kingdom. And here's the uneasy thing. We're also to perform healing. Think about that for a minute. What does that mean? Well, to proclaim the kingdom doesn't mean we sit on our hands and we don't say anything. Um, What's the hope within us? We need to be ready to give an account for that hope. We need to be willing to talk to others about the gospel and to be there when they're in times of turmoil. You know, 70% of people that come to faith in Christ, don't you love statistics? It happens when people are in crisis. We have a new pastor coming to Atlanta. He's Ethiopian. He said that the window to reach a Muslim by white people, that's exactly how he told us this, is in the first six months that a Muslim's in our country. They are the most vulnerable and they don't know anything and they're asking for help. Interesting. He actually trains and equips churches on how to reach the Muslim population within those first six months. I never thought of that. Going to a new country, not knowing it, you don't even know the language and you're you're dropped in there. He said that's when the church should be responding and reacting to that, right there. To reaching out to those people. But either way, the proclamation, it's a proclamation. What did they do? They went out and they preached repentance. The people should repent. They should turn. And to, prof- and to provide healing, to perform healing. It's preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. What kind of healing? The... the, the, the This is where sometimes the church can get off a little bit and forget. You know, I once... um, I even forget the conversation I was in. But Oral Roberts University has one of the finest medical facilities and hospitals. They train some of the best doctors in the world. Yet Oral Roberts has this gift of healing. And I have often have pushed back on... Some of the people that come from there, well, why did you go there to get your, your your pre-meds and your to become a doctor? Well, not everybody has a gift of healing. Does God heal today? Well, sure He does. If it was like the early church, somebody can walk down the, the street and somebody could just touch their their cloak and they would be healed. But those days, they're not these days. We can provide healing by coming alongside of people and being more than a comfort to them. Praying over them, and being there for them, and loving on them. Uh, we live in a society here that uh, uh, God still heals in the midst of things. You know, years ago, a hundred years ago, most of our hospitals were started by the church. They were started by people in the church. They are started by people who who uh, went out and started to do something to help change a community. You know, one of the things that's interesting here, when you look at chapter 9, and you see then the, the, the 12 come back, and they're all excited about things and all these things. First thing Jesus did is he took them away. But then you get to Luke chapter 10. If you've got some time, you might want to read these two chapters together. This is a fascinating thing. In Luke chapter 10, now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others. So a short time happened, the nine came back, now he appoints 70 others, so 70 plus the 12 go out, and he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. He talks about searching for the man of priests, going from door to door in chapter 10, but then when you get back to verse 17, we you see that they come back and they are just excited. They returned with joy. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon the serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy. Nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, Jesus said, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. No other place in Scripture... Does it say that Jesus, at that point, rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit? Um, as a father raising five children, we have seen all of our children be a part of seeing people come to faith in Christ, to discipling them. Um, I remember when my last child experienced that, my comment to the father is, you can just take me home now. I was excited. I, I, I got a glimpse of what Jesus was rejoicing in here people you invested in were turning around and, and they were investing in others and they were investing in others how do you think we got 120 people in the book of Acts before the church started it wasn't because of a solo preacher you see in Acts chapter 11 that the church after the stoning of Peter the church is sent out, it scatters and the church spreads all throughout Asia not because of the apostles, they stay back in Jerusalem it's because the people went out and they started proclaiming they started caring for one another and all of a sudden, the church was born and split. So when you come to Luke chapter 9, to me, the significance is understanding that permission and purpose were given to us. The power was promised, and the task was defined. You and I are to be about proclamation. or to be about serving and bringing healing to other people. If you want to see a... If you really dare, look at Matthew 10 sometime and read through that. And see Jesus's agenda for each disciple. It's amazing, and I didn't cover that, but it's just amazing to see what what's the cost of discipleship in following Christ. I encourage you to read that. So when we talk about the church, when you go home today, talk about the pastor, you can talk about the guest speaker. That's easy. Um, think about that. There's a man named Dr. Sam Shoemaker. And he wrote this thinking about the idea of the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. And he wrote this, and this was adapted from what he wrote. He said, I stay by the door, near the door. I neither go too far in nor stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It's the door in which people walk through when they find God. There's no use by going way inside and staying there. When so many outside and they crave to know what the door is, where the door is, so I stay by the door. The most tremendous thing in the world for people is to find that door, the door to God. The most important thing anyone could do is to take hold of those blind, groping hands and put it on a latch and help them walk through that door. Nothing else matters compared to helping them find it. Open it, walk in, and find God. So he said, I stay by the door. Go in, great saints. Go all the way in, he writes. Go all way down in the cavernous cellars and way up into the spacious attics. It is a vast roomy house. This house is where God is. Go into the deepest hidden casements of withdrawal, of silence, but realize that people too far in do not see Preoccupied with the wonder of all, so I stay by the door. He writes, I admire people that go way in, but wish they would not forget how, how it was before they got in. Then they would be able to help the people who have yet even to find that door to God. You can go in too deeply, stay too long, forget the people outside the door. As for me, he says, I shall take my old accustomed place, never enough to God to hear him, um, near enough to, to God to hear him and know he is there, but not so far from people as to not to hear them and to remember they are there too. Where? They're outside the door, thousands of them, millions of them, to meet God. The more important for me, he said, one of them, two of them, ten of them, whose hands I am intended to put on the latch, so I shall stay by the door and wait for those who seek it. He goes, I choose to be a doorkeeper. I choose to help people to find God. Where I'm at, where God has me. Church, as we go from here today, remember in a very simple way, as Jesus built into his disciples, he didn't do anything haphazard. But at that point, he gave the twelve the permission with purpose to go and make disciples. He gave them the promise of the Holy Spirit and said, as you and I depend upon God he gives the strength we need, the grace we need. The, when you read the gospel, he'll give you the words you need when you need them. Even, you'll stand there, scratch your head, think, where do those words even come from? That's the work of God in you. And if you follow God for any length of time, you've experienced those moments. But then he defined the task. It's proclamation of the gospel. It's sharing the good news with people verbally and then bringing healing to them and comfort to them in their pain. The place we live in, there are people all around us. It's a painful place. There's a lot of suffering. You and I are the people. You and I are the church. God has put there in our neighborhoods and our workplaces for that very purpose, to proclaim the good news. So stay by the door and help people put their hand in that latch that they may find God and find redemption through Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the mission you've given us, for the permission, the promise, and thank you for the task. Lord, we're not adequate, but you already covered that last week. You make us adequate through your indwelling spirit. So, Father, we just surrender ourselves to you afresh. Use us this week, Lord, and be glorified in Christ's name. Amen.